This episode of Keep Calm and Cook On is presented by Great Jones. Great Jones is a line of beautiful, last-you-a-lifetime cookware that's priced well and comes in great finishes and colors. To find out more about Great Jones, head over to greatjones.com. And for 15% off of any purchase on greatjones.com, use the code CALM. That's C-A-L-M. Before I dive into this week's very special episode, just a note to say that I will be answering Thanksgiving cooking questions on Monday, November 25th from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Great Jones's Popline, their free text message service where anyone can ask for recipe ideas or get advice. I will be sure to share details on my Instagram page when that Monday rolls around, but I wanted to give you a heads up for all of your Thanksgiving questions. Okay, today's conversation. You might remember today's guest, Yemi Amu, from episode four of this podcast. Yemi is the farmer and educator behind Oko Farms in Brooklyn, New York. It's an aquaponics farm that not only produces fish and produce and flowers, but also works as an educational farm. She's in the middle of raising money to expand into a second location at the Weeksville Heritage Center. I wanted to find out more details about her work since I find it so encouraging and full of practical solutions about sustainability and more. And I also wanted to hear what the expansion will look like. So I invited Yemi back and it was wonderful to visit again. In addition to all things aquaponics, Yemi and I had a very personal and vulnerable conversation about how healing her work has been for her. And we both open up and talk about eating disorders and disordered eating. I just wanted to mention that up front. I found that you, the community of listeners who tune into these episodes, has been such a kind and compassionate group, and I just wanted to let you know how much I value that and ask that you hold this conversation in that spirit. I hope you enjoy learning more about Yemi's work as much as I did, and if you're able, I hope you'll join me in supporting her. Head to okofarms.com for more information. The link to her farm and to her fundraising platform are in the show notes. Please share them. Our food community is at its best with people like Yemi doing the work that she's doing. Okay, without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation. How do you define aquaponics? Right, and that's the that's the question that everyone asks. Yeah. So um, the way it is mostly described is that it is a hybrid of aquaculture, which is fish farming. And hydroponics, which is soilless farm cultivation. Soil as farm. Soilless. Soilless. Yeah. So okay. like growing without soil. Yeah. Right? Which so like might not seem like something that's possible, <laughs> but it, it is possible. <laughs> but it is. Okay. Um, and that's what's popularly known as hydroponics, when okay. you grow without soil. Got it. Um, I describe it, or I like to describe it as... Um, a farming system that's based on an uh, ecosystem of fish, plants, and microbes, where um, the fish produce waste and that waste is recycled um, by giving it to plants and then plants filter out that water and then the clean filtered water is returned to fish. And then the microbes are actually the ones responsible for converting that fish waste into nutrients that plants take up so that... um, clean water is returned to the fish. So you have this ecosystem where fish need their waste removed, the microbes need to feed on that fish waste, and they produce their own waste as a byproduct, 
and then plants take up that waste, and then you have clean water return to fish. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, it's I like mean, a perfect circle. That's yeah. how, that's nature's work. Yeah. So in aquaponics, you're mimicking what happens naturally in nature. So any natural body of water where you have aquatic animals, you're going to have this ecosystem that in, includes microbes and aquatic plants, whether it's the ocean, whether it's lakes or rivers, mm-hmm. that cycle is constantly um, taking place. So this is a question I always ask kids. When you have a fish tank at home, you're always pouring out that water because the, uh, the, you say the water is dirty. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens in the ocean or what happens in rivers Yeah, it doesn't lake? get drained. Yeah. yeah, does it get drained and refill back up because they're fish-producing waste? The answer is no, because there's this natural ecosystem that exists there. Um, and aquaponics is actually thousands of years old. The ancient um, Aztecs practiced aquaponics um, using systems called chinampas, right? They would build um, literally grow beds on top of uh, canals, and then water from the canal would be like filtered up, and then all that fish waste is also uh, providing nutrients that the plants are taking up and using to grow. The ancient Chinese also did it, and the Egyptians had a version of it. Yeah, so this has been around. It's been around forever, yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and then you get both plants and fish, and as they, a, and they a like product, literally feed each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like you know how people use manure and compost and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's like it exists in all these different places. Exactly. Yeah. But you're also not throwing out any of that water. Exactly. So it involves water, but you're not wasting water. Exactly. Yeah. So you're essentially recycling the wastewater from the fish and using it to grow plants, rather than tossing out that water. How come? This doesn't happen more. <laughs> like, that's how a, come it's not everywhere? That's a good question. Um, for a lot of reasons, I think the 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 bigger reason is that the entire like food system is built on nitrogen fertilizer, right? So this type of food system where you're recycling waste is not really, mm. you know, it, it, we've shifted dramatically away from using. Um, animal waste, you know, to grow food on a large scale. Yeah. That's one answer. So but, using the chemical as yeah, you do it on this yeah, really humongous exactly, scale, faster. Right. right. Yeah. And we've, we're more and more, we're making that movement towards organic. I mean, when I started working with food in, what, the early 2000s, organic was such a niche, yeah. right? And now it's it's mainstream. So it's becoming more and more popular now. Why it completely went out? I don't know. I don't think I can answer that necessarily. Um, I think because maybe most of us don't live by water anymore um, and we haven't necessarily seen the use for saving water for the most part. Um, But because of climate change and other reasons, there's more and more limited access to water in a lot of parts of the world, including the United States. So it's becoming more important to think about how we use water to grow food. Um, Soil, traditional soil agriculture uses about, um, what is it, 70% of fresh water available for us, right? And we have 3% fresh water available for human use. So if we're using 70% of that to grow food, that's a problem. That's a lot. Yeah. With aquaponics, you're using about 10%. So there's like a huge... Um, change. I think another reason now that I think about it is because not a lot of us have knowledge about raising fish. Mm. 
and you do need knowledge of of aquaculture or like raising fish yeah. to begin with. Um, I'm working with NYU um, Animal Behavior Studies program right now, and I'm learning from them how little we regard fish hmm. to begin with. Right. Um, so there's we see fish as these creatures that exist like over there, you know, in the ocean. We know so little about water and what happens in the water. They don't have like cute cuddly. <laughs> yeah. It's not like cuddly. a baby little yeah, goat yeah. or cow or yeah. Yeah. So unless you're living in parts of the world where you're reliant on fish for your source of protein, um, fish cultivation is not something that most people would turn to, right? Yeah. So there's a huge knowledge gap there. That's so interesting. Even for me, I'm still trying to figure it out. How did you acquire the knowledge you have? How did aquaponics come into your life? Um, it. I first heard about aquaponics when I was working um, on a rooftop farm in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. So I used to work as an, um, a chef and a nutrition educator at this um, for housing, permanent housing facility for formerly homeless, mentally ill adults. And um, I helped set up a rooftop farm there. And one of the uh, community volunteers introduced me to aquaponics. It didn't seem too much of a far-fetch as far as fish farming was concerned because I had a neighbor when I lived in Nigeria, which is where I'm from, mm -hmm. who was uh, farming catfish. Literally in her front yard. Wow. Yeah. Like in one of these kind of water Yeah, she beds. built, yeah. yeah, she'd like dug a pond wow. and had the fish there. My mom would buy fish from her And she um, just regularly. did it like to raise fish for herself or for was herself she was selling it? For herself and the community. She okay. was selling it, yeah. Okay. And like everyone in the neighborhood was like her clients, <laughs> which was really cool. But I also remember her saying she did not think it was a sustainable business because of the amount of water it it utilized. Mm. Um, and in Nigeria, we pay for water. Mm. Um, and it's not, doesn't come cheap. Um, so when I heard that and he said to me, well, you're actually recycling the water? I thought, oh, this is interesting. So you're raising fish and you're also saving the water because you're giving it to plants and the plants are growing and then you're like returning it into fish he was like yeah that's the idea and he, and he was like and you don't ever have to think about water in your plants I was like oh yeah okay <laughs> that's amazing this is great that's yeah. like so obvious but I hadn't thought about that part yeah. I know right yeah because yeah. at first I was like oh, I don't know and then he was like no think about it you get to raise fish for your residents they can get a sustainable source of like not just sustainable but really healthy source of yeah. protein and you save yourself a lot of time in watering. Cause, you know, and so you're not farmers, trucking these things uh, exactly, back and forth. Yeah. And then I just started looking into it and just understanding, like, aquaculture and understanding the relationship um, between aquaculture and even, like, ocean fishing and wild fishing. Like, what does it mean? And what are the benefits of aquaculture versus um, getting fish from the ocean? And what are, the, what are the, some of the negatives, right? And I just like went into it. And the more I studied it, the more I realized that aquaponics is actually an improvement on aquaculture, land-based aquaculture, and also an answer to saving the ocean. Because at this point, we've eliminated 80% of the ocean's biodiversity. I mean, it's really, it's like, it's, it's a solution. Right. It's such a good thing. It's, it really is yeah. a good thing. And you can practice it on a small scale in a place like Brooklyn. 
in the beginning, we were focused more on selling. Like, first two, three years, we were focused more on, like, production. And then we scaled back on production a little bit and started focusing more on, like, uh, school groups. Um, so we do educational tours and workshops with, with school groups and adults and have a apprenticeship program and have partnerships with um, colleges. Um, NYU, Bates, <laughs> so many different parts of <laughs> programs in NYU, Bates. We even had, like, a... Bates corn, in, Bates in Maine? In Maine, okay. yeah. Um, and even had an intern from Cornell. So we've kind of been operating that way, doing a lot of research in aquaponics. Like, what can you grow in aquaponics? Yeah. What doesn't work in aquaponics? And teaching that, you know, both to the general public and to schools. Um, and then doing some selling, uh, mostly giving away, really, in the community, just as a way to get people in the community to embrace um, fresh produce. Yeah. So are you able to, if you haven't been so much a production farm mm. and you're at the point where you can even give away produce, mm-hmm. so the income you're receiving is from teaching? Yes. Okay. It's from the workshops. Okay. Yeah. And, and that that's how it maintains the farm. Got it. Right. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's great. So we have the apprenticeship program. It's like its own ecosystem. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do, which is actually a little more difficult, is move all of our operations to a new site, but somehow keep still keep that site open. And so keep the former site or the current site open. Yeah, yeah, in some way by partnering with other community groups. Okay. That way we're not stretched thin. Yeah. So I'm talking with a few community groups. They still require training and all of that, but if I can at least have some other community groups that can you know, work with Green Thumb and help keep the site open, because the last thing I want to do it's just abandoned. The space was an abandoned lot before yeah. we came in. And I do not want it to return. Like leave it as you yeah. found it. Yeah. That's very rough for me. Yeah. There's a lot of work and resources and passion and community love that has yeah. gone into, into that farm. So now I have the dilemma of raising money to move so that we can not just continue our programs but expand on them and get to a point where we're actually hiring people. Yeah. You know? Um, and have truly a, sustainable. Yeah, that yeah. makes it truly sustainable. And also think about how to keep this farm aside in some way still um, operational mm-hmm. and open to the public. So if Green Thumb says we can't do education there, fine. Um, we'll grow some stuff. Um, but then it means I need to find people who have the skills and yeah. the ability to be able to that also trustworthy and responsible enough because we have animals to maintain the site. So that's going to be um, a challenge. Sure. Yeah. And tell me about where you're looking to move and have this kind of second site. Yeah, so this is really exciting. We're actually in talks right now. The the agreement hasn't been signed yet, but it's happening. But we're going to put some good energy towards it. energy towards it uh, at Weeksville Heritage Center, which is um, a historic black museum. Weeksville was the um, first intentional free black settlement in New York. It was started by a man named James Weeks in the early 1800s, I believe. So um, African-Americans that fled the South came to New York and settled in Weeksville. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, yeah. yes. North Crown Heights, Brooklyn is mm-hmm. what it's being called right now. But it was a pretty large part of Brooklyn. Um, and even African-Americans that were fleeing the draft riots um, in Manhattan also wow. fled to, to... So Weeksville was a fully self-sustained, um, intentional community. They grew their own food. 
They um, had their own schools. The first black female doctor, I believe, from New York um, came out of Weeksville. Wow. Yeah. So it's just this um, part of Brooklyn that is rich with history, you know, not just um, African-American history, but American history. So the historic houses are on the site right now. There's a beautiful museum. And what Ogle Farms is doing now is just helping to continue that legacy of sustainability as particularly related to agriculture. Because at the time, of course, people grew all their own food and, you know, they stored food for the winter. They preserved seeds. Um, People brought seeds from the South and people, you know, there's a lot of interesting work around food and sustainability. It wasn't called that. (laughs) It was just life for people at the time. You know, people grew wild plants and used them for medicine and also grew their own food. So bringing that back, um, from an aquaponics lens, because the same you can grow well plants in aqu- in water. You can yeah. grow all kinds of food in water, and you're also raising fish, which is a you know which is a great component. Is just again having the conversation with the community around like what does it take to actually raise animals for food? Yeah, you know having people directly engage in that and learning about uh, the challenges involved. Right, you have to kill it. Mm. What yeah, does what does that, that mean sure. when you have to do yeah. that? And what does it mean to raise it humanely? Mm-hmm. And how much of it can you provide if you're thinking about not just sustainability, but also um, the humane aspect of raising the fish? So that's all the stuff that we'll be bringing there. Um, a farmer's market, expanded educational programming, particularly with with the schools in the the neighboring um, in the neighborhood, um, farm to table events a lot of cooking workshops. I mean, we'll be doing just doing things and also having our farm available open to the public year-round, which we have not been able mm. to do so far. So we're using this opportunity to move to also expand yeah. on what we're offering. It's really um, huge and, and really meaningful and to bring this, you know, farming is is it's it's alive. Yeah. <laughs> and so to bring this life back to this very historic place, mm-hmm. just it feels very significant just obviously. Right. And also for for people of color to see that being sustainable and farming is your legacy. Sure. You know, it's not new. Yeah. You know, your people have always done it. Um, It used to be called life. (laughs) And it's not something that you, because I think for a lot of, of, of people of color, we see sustainability as something that has nothing to do with us, but we are directly impacted by climate change. We're directly impacted by pollution. We're directly impacted by, you know, low quality food. Um, and our communities are bombarded with junk food and pollution and all of these things. And we should have a say in, you know, policy, you know, on we should have a direct say in like what we want the future to look like and to be able to define what sustainability is for us and our communities. And one way to do that is to engage people in farming because it hits everything. You know, you're cleaning the air by growing plants. You're, le- you're getting access to nutritious food. You're understanding how food is grown. You can't decide what to grow and what to eat and you can't push policy if you don't understand what it actually takes to grow food in a way that's safe, both for human consumption and for the environment. So I see our role there is to like directly engage people on these issues and to have them see that they can also, they have the power already to be part of the sustainability 
movement. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like woven into your legacy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, agriculture in this country wouldn't exist if it wasn't for West Africans. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I get to be a West African who's voluntarily farming in New York. I wish at this moment this wasn't a podcast. So you could see your smile when you say that. That's major. Uh, something we were talking about before is um, before we were recording is just the ways in which a lot of people come to this kind of work, and a mm-hmm. lot of people come to this kind of you know g- community-minded agricultural work from like a social justice perspective. You know, it could be any number of things. Mm-hmm. But for you, it comes from this super personal place. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, it came from a place of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I, I want to say. Better today, but <laughs> I've had since I was 13 very dysfunctional relationship with food. Um, it's you know from 13 till about 20, ooh, I want to say 23, 24, mm-hmm. I was bulimic. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it was bulimia, um, sometimes it was anorexia, you know, it was a lot of dis- dysfunctional um, things. And part of my healing process initially was figuring out a way to establish a more um, healthy relationship with food. And cooking became that, you know, seeing I I took a course in Ayurvedic nutrition and I was blown away by the fact that, well, I was learning something that my mom used to teach me, but I ignored Mm. (laughs) growing up, which is that food is medicine, right? So I was no longer seeing food as this thing that was either about being fat or being Mm -hmm. skinny. And I started to see it as something that can actually help you feel better about yourself. It can help relieve like physical pain or even sometimes emotional pain. Like food does not always have to be seen from the perspective of is this going to make me fat sure. or is this going to make me skinny? And it was transformational for me. Um, Were you? Was it like twenty three or twenty four? Yeah, it was about. Yeah, it was about twenty three. Yeah, and it was a slow process you know to to go for, to even start to think to make that shift right it's one thing to be aware of it it's another thing to to make the shift and one of the things that I did to make myself accountable was um to decide that I wanted I would create a career for myself in food I would teach people about how food um can be a source of health for them and um can lead them towards healing, like the foods you eat can be healing. So if I'm telling people that the food that they're eating is healing, then I also need to to live it. I have to live it. So accountable to yourself. Yes. So I started on that just to be accountable to myself. I started doing um, nutrition education workshops. I would be teaching. um, I would go to people's homes Mm -hmm. and teach them how to cook and take people to the farmer's market uh, or grocery store and teach them how to read food labels and teach them how to um, come up with a diet that worked for them, you know? Um, So if you have irritable bowel syndrome, Mm -hmm. how do I, how do we, this is based on my Ayurvedic teaching at the time, how do I understand what's actually causing it? It might be anxiety, it might be other things that you're dealing with. If your um, issue is like, I want to cook, I want to eat healthier, but I don't have time to cook, how do I work with you to figure out a way to do that better? Like, what is your barrier? Is it really time? Mm -hmm. Or is it that you just don't have the cooking skills, you know? So I did a lot of that work. Like Um, one-on-one, personal. One-on-one, yes. Um, 
And it kept me accountable. Wow. And then I went from that to doing a culinary training program uh, with an organization that no longer exists called Food Change in Harlem. Uh, it was a, I think, four-month program, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., and in exchange for the culinary classes that we did in the morning, we helped prepare food um, for the public. It was served every day, I think four, so we left later than four. Mm-hmm. So we would uh, cook from scratch, um, um, entree, and uh, I think two side dishes, and serve that yeah. to 400 people. Wow. That's a shame that doesn't still exist. I know. Yeah. It's a real shame. And through them, I was be, I was able to get the job at Georgia's place where I started farming. Got it. And okay. that work that work there was to be an organic chef that cooked five meals a week for the residents, and also do nutrition um, education work with, workshops with them, which is literally the same thing that I did with one on one with my clients before that job. I was doing with the residents mm-hmm. of the building and also cooking. Yeah, and that led to the farming. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to back up for a second and just, you know, this is about that kind of decade of your life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something you've shared with me before you mm-hmm. shared on an earlier episode right. of this podcast, and it really stayed with me. And um, I said to you over email, we spoke, but I just wanted to say out loud to thank you for sharing that. And I really identify with it. I mean, I struggled with, I would say, disordered eating in the same period of my life and continued to in different mm-hmm. ways. And here I am working on cookbooks and being in such control of food down to the half teaspoon of right. whatever you're going to add. And, you know, you and I spoke a little bit about, I think it's very common for people who have um, relationships with food, which we all do as human mm. beings, and relationships that aren't always maybe the most positive mm-hmm. to turn to food in some way. Mm-hmm. I think that exists a lot in the food industry, especially among women in the food industry. I don't think it's discussed all that and much. And I didn't know that yeah. until we spoke about it. Yeah. Because it was always something I felt shame around. I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, that's a huge part of what makes it so sticky is mm-hmm. that it's totally, totally woven with shame. Mm-hmm. And I I can only speak from my own personal experience. I think the best thing you can do for shame is to say it out loud. Yeah, to speak <laughs> yeah, it. Which is really right. hard. It's yeah. really hard. Yeah. I remember I'd just gone out of college and um, I was working at a music publishing company <laughs> and I had burst uh, blood vessels in both eyes. Oh my gosh. From purging. Wow. And oh, wow. one of my coworkers called me into her office. She had an office of her own and was like, what is going on with you? And I was like, what are you talking about? She was like, I, there's something wrong. Like, you don't just burst blood vessels mm. in, in both eyes. So I broke down and mm-hmm. I told her um, what was going on. She was like, well, you need therapy. You need to talk to someone, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So I was like, all right. And I made, a, <laughs> I made an appointment with a therapist. And I sat down with her. And I was like talking about, you know, I'm from Nigeria, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, wait, you're from Nigeria? I'm like, yeah. She was like, where's that? I was like, Africa. And she was like, huh. And I could see the entire hour I spent with her, she could not reconcile, <laughs> like, her image of who an African is. Wow. And this, I could see that in her head. She was like, you can't be purging, you know, you can't be, like, overeating and purging and be African. Aren't they starving? <laughs> like, oh like I could see the entire session, like, she could not reconcile with that. And I felt so much shame. When I left. That story and makes me like, so mad. Yeah. Because for you to go into that office is so vulnerable. 
I'm so sorry that <laughs> happened. I'm like fuming. Oh, yeah. I just cut you off. Sorry. No, I was it's okay. so upset yeah, about that therapist. Like, yeah, that's I'm like, oh. And then I just felt even more shame. Yeah. And also really annoyed. Mm-hmm. And even in college, like when I was in, in grad school, we um, I took a class on um, eating disorders. And I didn't see people who looked like me mm. in any of the texts or in any of the videos we watched. It was everything that was related to eating disorders and black women specifically was just um, overeating. Wow. Right? Oh, and overeating and obesity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All of the information I found, like, we are anorexic too and we're bulimic too because we're human beings. And yes, even Africans. Yeah, <laughs> even, Africans. even Africans. Wow. Right. You said sort of better now, but mm-hmm. it's to me, I mean, all these things we're talking about are so personal. It's mm-hmm. not the same for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it's something that doesn't quite ever go away. No. It's like learning how, how to manage it. Right. How to live and with be it. aware. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering, is is there anything you do in particular now to manage it? How do you manage it? Is it your work? Is I, it work? Also, I I don't, um, how, I, I don't not eat anything. You know, like, mm. that's, that's usually a trigger for me. Yeah. The moment like restriction. I, yeah, no restrictions. That's yeah. the word I'm looking for. Because yeah. um, that's always the, the trigger. Yeah. There are some things I just don't eat anymore just because I'm no longer interested in them. But the moment I tell myself, I'm going to be vegetarian, mm. I'm going to be vegan, it's always, you know, I'm going to be gluten-free. Yeah. That's always a trigger. It, yeah, because yeah. it just takes me back to the habit of, um, well, because I can't have this thing. And I'm going to overeat. Yeah. On you know, I'm gonna like <laughs> overeat on this thing, and then I'm gonna feel ashamed that I did it, and then I'm gonna go throw up. So yeah. I'm just trying not to. There are times when I do binge, yeah. you know, and I have to sit with myself and be like, okay, <laughs> that happened, mm-hmm. and you're just gonna deal with it. Um, and I'm learning now. And I'm saying like now as in like very recently, Mm -hmm. I'm catching myself when I'm binging out of stress. Like in the moment. In the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big deal. And that's something that I wasn't doing before. So habits like um, I'm cooking, but then I'm eating as I'm cooking. And then I eat what I cooked. Uh So I've just had two meals. Sure, sure. (laughs) I understand. And that's a stress thing. Yeah. yeah, and I'm, I just caught it last week, like, oh, no, when you cook, just cook. Yeah. I was talking to a friend recently who has a young child, and she was talking about, like, eating whatever her kid doesn't eat mm-hmm. and then eating what she makes for herself, right. too, and sort of not realizing that moment. And not that there's anything wrong with, mm-hmm. you know, eating the leftover Le- chicken nuggets right. or whatever <laughs> it might be. Um, but I think that just kind of consciousness and be mindful. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard and it's like daily work. Yeah, because yeah. it's food and you need to eat it. Yeah, yeah. Or catching myself eating when I'm not hungry. Mm. Right. It's like I just want to eat, but I'm not hungry. But I'm gonna eat anyway. Yeah. Right. And you know, before I would do it full guilty and then purge. Yeah. Now I do it and I go, well, it happened. So. <laughs> you yeah. know, deal with it. Or sometimes I just make the decision I'm going to binge. So I binge on a salad because I'm like, I'm going to binge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm going to go buy, um, I have like tons of veg- greens on the farm and I'll go buy some other things and make some greens. I'm just going to eat and eat these two bowls of salad because I feel like binging mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And just do it consciously. Yeah. You know, but that's how I, I 
I do it. Like, yeah. don't binge on, like, a box of Krispy Kreme and then McDonald's and then, you know, which is, <laughs> which is what I used to yeah, do before. I, mean, I, I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this because I, I need to do it and I'm not going to fight it. And then I'm done. I'm yeah. done for a long time. Yeah. I think that's, for me, I, I find those moments a lot better than when I'm doing it unconsciously. Yeah. That the kind of self-awareness mm-hmm. is, is very empowering mm-hmm. to have just to, yeah. I, I mean, I, I know I find that for myself, my own relationship with myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is, can sometimes be the hardest relationship. Yeah. And we can be so hard on ourselves and not give ourselves the kindness we might give to other people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, it's a lot. Um, it sounds like that Ayurvedic class was mm-hmm. like a real turning point for you. Oh, yeah. It changed did, my life. How did you like... How do you walk into that door? How do you find out about it? Like, what made you want to take it? Did you see a flyer? Like, how did that happen? Honestly, after I left that um, therapist, mm. I was like, I don't know if therapy is going to work. Yeah. So I need to find something else that'll work. And, um, I, I, you know, it's weird. I thought to myself, I'm going to be obsessed with food. I don't think it makes sense to try not to be obsessed with food. I need to find a way to be obsessed with food in a healthier manner. Sure. So maybe I should find a nutrition class or a cooking class, just something. I didn't know what it was. And then I was looking online, and I magically stumbled on this Ayurvedic workshop. Wow. Um, with this amazing woman, Dr. Naina, um, who still practices now. And in Brooklyn? In, she's in Manhattan. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I signed up. I went for like just an initial consultation with her. And in my first meeting with her right away, she was like, you know, this is what's going on. I can, I can sense it. And I thought this is where I need to be. Without you really sharing it. Yeah. She takes your pulse and knows your life. It's weird. I mean, she sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is where I need to be because this seems kinder and more loving and, you know, and I need to be here. It's, I'm, I really appreciate you sharing this because um, I find that I end up talking about mental health with so many people who mm-hmm. I talk to on this podcast mm-hmm. and in life in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been uh, in and out of therapy since high school and have found it very beneficial mm-hmm. in my life. And I think sometimes I tend to forget that therapy can come in all different forms. And right. And it can come in so many forms. Right. And uh, with the support and help of so many people. And, you know, you don't need to be laying on someone's couch to experience, <laughs> right. like, a therapeutic right. relationship. Some, sometimes yeah. you do. Yeah. Um, but then there – and there are also other ways. Sometimes it's the other thing that leads you to the therapist's sure. couch. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, because <laughs> last year I saw, um, I saw someone who did a chart reading with me, the – you know, your full, I don't know how to, how do you, astrology yeah, yeah. chart. Uh-huh. And her advice to me was go see a therapist <laughs> <So> sometimes. <laughs> what sign are you? I am Virgo sun, okay. um, Capricorn moon, okay. and Libra I'm rising. Like I know. I, right. I, I know a bit about my own, but I, I don't know yeah. enough about others. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like I'm an emotional Capricorn uh-huh. because that's your moon sign. Okay. And we don't do emotion really well. Ah. Yeah, everything is like, I was explaining the other day to someone, like, I'm always like, yeah, emotions, they either serve a purpose or they don't. <laughs> That's how I, I yeah. view them. Like, if I can't place the emotion, like, why are you angry? 
can you use that anger? You know? Like, what's the, what's what's the, the purpose? What's the yeah. purpose? What's you the can, function? Yeah, if it doesn't have a function, I don't know what to do with yeah. it. <laughs> I feel envious of that. <laughs> I feel like Yeah, so I admire emotional. people who just feel. Yeah. I'm just like, wow, I wish. Yeah. No, but I mean, I get that. <laughs> I feel like I feel a lot of feelings. I don't always know what to do with them. I'm right. aware that I'm feeling them. Yeah. But I don't always know how to handle them, yeah, I but guess. The, yeah. the thing with people like me is then you're not really focused on mm. why yeah. you're feeling the way you're feeling. You're too busy focused on, like, how to make the feeling useful. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Rather than, wait, why am I feeling yeah. angry? Why am I feeling sad? And so much of the work you do in the type of farming you do mm. and the way you do it is, like, I mean, it's about efficiency mm-hmm. and it's about not wasting anything. Right. It's about making sure everything has a purpose. So that makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Wow, that's a different way to look at <laughs> Anyway, it. I don't mean to make this a therapy session. I'm very suited for this. Yeah. Kind of so the, you know, the effect that that class had on you, mm-hmm. this, you know, like trajectory it set you on mm-hmm. and how transformative it was. Do you feel that that's something that you're offering now in your work when people come and take, a, you know, a class or learn about aquaponics and learn about farming from you? Is that something you're able to offer? Absolutely. Yeah. And I do. That's ap- amazing. Yeah. I do approach my work from that holistic perspective mm-hmm. because it is my foundation. Yeah. Um, even when people walk into the farm, I want them to feel like it's a safe space. I yeah. want you to, it to feel like warm and inspiring. I want you to walk out feeling differently about food than you did when you walked in. That's really what I do. So I approach it from, it's not just about, oh, this is how you grow food. It's like getting people, I give information that gets people thinking differently Mm -hmm. and gets them really excited and getting them to engage with food in a different way. Even the way the farm is set up, it's outdoors for a reason, because I want that being outdoors is good for you. Mm -hmm. It's it's healthy for you. Um, the, The style of aquaponics, most people do aquaponics indoors and it controls Control environment. Kind of like a laboratory. Techie, yeah. Yeah. When you come onto our site, you hear the sound of water. Mm -hmm. It's very soothing, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, The choice of plants that we grow is also... I want people to walk in and point out something that makes them excited. Either it reminds them of something from childhood or they've never seen it before and they're fascinated. Like, what is that plant? That color is beautiful. Or what are these, like, insects that are, like, all over this plant? These are the prettiest flying things I've ever seen. Like, like I'm I, not scared of a spider. I'm not scared. I'm yeah, yeah, I'm intrigued, right. So that's what I like to invoke for people. And I think the rest then is up to them, what they walk away from. But what is important is that you you leave transformed because that is what the Ayurvedic class did for me. Yeah. Was it transformed my thinking and it transformed my relationship. It inspired me. Mm-hmm. Food became this thing that got me excited, mm-hmm. you know, rather than, oh, it's something that I'm, I'm it, rather than, oh, I need to lose weight so I'm not going to eat this. So I've gained two pounds and I need to not eat this. Rather, it's like, oh, I need to learn about this food and what it does and I need to learn about this herb and what it does and, oh, this is so exciting. How can I share that information? In what interesting ways can I cook it? When we're on the farm, that's what I want to invoke with people. Like, this is so exciting. Yeah. This is so interesting. I want to go back home or to my school or to my community and I want to bring this there and I want to share this knowledge with them. Yeah, planting seeds, right? Yeah, exactly. Does that 
like metaphor work for aquaponics? It does because we still we are always planting okay. seeds. <laughs> it's just like wait, there's the, not soil. The difference is it's not in soil. <laughs> okay, right, which is also a thing that people have a sometimes conceptually they're like, wait, it's not you're not getting your hands dirty. It's not in the soil. How does it grow? And my answer is always, what can exist on this earth without water? What living thing? can exist without water like water is literally yeah. our lifeline yeah nothing yeah. yeah amazing i think probably the best way to experience this if you're in the new york area is to come yes to come visit yeah right so if someone wants to okay where do they go well it's getting cold so yes. you'll not be finding me outside <laughs> <laughs> um so in a few weeks, I want to say next two to three weeks, and we'll be announcing on Instagram, um, we will set up a small indoor space okay. with a wonderful collaborative space called the Mayday Space, uh-huh. where people can come and get to see aquaponics from an indoor perspective. Um, and we'll also be having cooking workshops and a lot of lots of fun aquaponics oh. classes. And then in April, we'll be up and running at our new site, um, which we're fundraising for right yeah. now. And, you know, please come come visit our new aquaponics site in, awesome. in Brooklyn. And if someone wants to, uh, you know, donate money, they're in the area and they love what you do and mm-hmm. support it, or they're not in the area and they can't come in person, but maybe they could give, you know, what they would spend on coffee or right. more than that, whatever. Where can they go? go Ocofarms.com? Ocofarms.com is our website. O-K-O. Um, yes. O-K-O-F-A-R-M-S.com. Dot com. And there's information about the fundraiser on the site. There's also information about just who we are and what we yeah. do. And there are tons of beautiful pictures of the farm um, and all of our partners and information on um, all of our activities coming up. We have a workshop on aquaponics coming up on December 1st and 2nd. Cool. So you get to learn the history and the science and practice of aquaponics. And we also have a DIY built. So you can build your own home system that's so learn cool. to build your own yeah and you go home with like a list of materials and where you can find them yeah so you can um replicate it amazing at home. Yeah. amazing i one thing i i mean there's so much that i appreciate and admire about what you do and one of those things is how willingly you give out information and i feel we like that's that. kind of rare <laughs> and i know we've spoken about that's especially rare in kind of particularly the aquaponics community mm-hmm. and i just think it's great how you do that and i just wanted to name that <laughs> yeah well thank you i just i it's necessary yeah. if if we can't ask for a better food movement or just a better world in general if you are hoarding information that mm-hmm. makes the world mm-hmm. a better place. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. And it's food. Food is so fundamental to our existence. Yeah. And anything related to food production should not be a secret. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Well, thank you for, for unsecreting <laughs> some of that. Thank you for sharing so much about, like, personally, how you got to this place and what you're doing. Yeah, it's easy to share with you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you are in a safe space here. I And I really... I've picked up from the people who listen to this. I feel like this is a very supportive community. Nice. So, um, yeah, I, I think you're in good hands. Yay. So thank you. Thank Can I you. ask you one last question? Sure. Just a fun question that sure. I ask everyone. Um, when you were growing up, like little yummy, like mm-hmm. little, little, what was your favorite thing to eat? Ooh. First thing to come to mind. Okra soup. Okra soup. Yes. Yeah. I was a weird little girl. Uh- <laughs> that doesn't seem so weird to me. Okra soup. Nigerians have this like okra soup that I love so much. 
Um, it's called ilasipo, which is almost like a gumbo, but with different ingredients. So it's okra cooked with like chopped, really diced, mm-hmm. and then cooked with um, like a, something called locust, be- uh, like fermented locust mm-hmm. beans and like dried fish and snails and so all that like all that kind of yeah. like funk depth, yeah. oh, depth of flavor. Yes, yeah, that, I love yeah. that and like slightly spicy. Um, and growing up, we would have to eat it with a starch, which is like a like a like a form of fufu. Mm-hmm. Like I was never interested in that piece. I just wanted to. <laughs> you just wanted the soup. Yeah, I just wanted the soup. And it, whenever I did really well in an exam, my mom would ask me like, "What do you want?" I would either go with that soup or pepper soup. Mm. Pepper soup is literally a spicy broth, and yeah. I would always ask for that. Those were my two. Yeah, so wow. it's like okra soup or pepper soup, cool. like two favorite things, yeah. Are those things you eat frequently now? Yes. Yeah. 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 I yeah. love okra. I have a tattoo You grow it. it. You have a, I grow you have it. okra tattoo? Yeah, I grow it on the farm. I have a bread tattoo. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, Our childhood favorites. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I love I And the plant is beautiful yeah. and regal and it's... Part of the hibiscus family, so the flowers are gorgeous. Yeah, I go on and on about okra. About okra. <laughs> <laughs> Your next farm will be okra farms. I know, right? <laughs> the seeds can be a coffee substitute. Oh, wow. Yeah, the baby leaves are edible, huh. like a spinach. Wow, Yeah, amazing. I, I, when I say I can go on, I really can. Yeah, no, you, you are an educator. <laughs> You really are. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. um, I appreciate you also. And helping just raise awareness about Oko Farms and the work that we do. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my true pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Yemi. Want to know more about Great Jones? Let's hear it from the founders themselves. I'm Sierra Tishgart. I'm one of the founders of Great Jones. And I'm Maddie Mollis. I'm the other founder of Great Jones. We launched with five pieces of cookware and a mix of materials, and our goal is to make high-quality cookware more accessible and make you proud to cook at home. Who is Great Jones named after? It is a nod to a woman named Judith Jones, who is a cookbook author and editor who championed the work of Julia Child, Edna Lewis, James Beard. She really helped define what we consider now to be American cooking and brought great diversity to American cookbooks. She also, interestingly enough, pulled Anne Frank's manuscript out of a reject pile. She's amazing. We wanted to make her legacy known. And it's a nod to the street as well. We're based in New York. We are very proud to build this company in New York, and it's a great street. Who's Great Jones for? We always say you're cooking if you are making an omelet in your pajamas. So we really want to spotlight the home cook. When you take pride in the tools that you cook with, hopefully you'll be motivated to cook even more frequently. For more about Great Jones, head to greatjones.com. Remember that one of their pots or pans is a gift that lasts a lifetime, and you can even get one of their stainless steel lids engraved. For 15% off of any purchase on greatjones.com, use the code CALM. That's C-A-L-M. It's now time to answer listeners' questions about cooking. I'm going to pass this microphone to my wife, Grace, who's right next to me, who is going to be the voice of the listeners. Hey, JT, you ready for question number one? I'm ready. Okay. Your first question comes from Julie, who lives in Huntington, New York. Julie asks, I am hoping to try frying some donuts for the first time this winter, and I was wondering what to do with all that oil that's left over after cooking. Should I discard it? 
And how do I discard it? Or can it be cooled and reused for another batch? I just want to say, well done, Julie. Homemade donuts sound delicious. Yeah, I was going to say, when should we come over? <laughs> that sounds so good. Um, so frying oil, yes, you can use it again. Uh, let it cool, store it like in an airtight container or a jar, and you can reuse it a few times. If you're making donuts, stick with sweet things like donuts or other kind of bread items. And I would say after frying something like fish or maybe onion rings, it might be time to move on. And so when you're ready to discard your cooking oil, your frying oil, don't pour it down your drain. It's going to muck up your drain. I have talked to my plumber about this. The best way to get rid of a lot of oil is to let it cool, pour it into a bottle with a cap, screw it really tight, and then just put it in your trash can. One other idea, if you have a cat, you can actually get rid of the cooking oil with the cat litter. That might be a little bit gross, but it works well. Okay, your second question comes from Kelly, who says, One of the most touching personal stories you shared in your cookbook now and again is the healthy Happy Wife Cake revision of Grace's favorite dessert. Julia, you are such an expert in food as a love language, and I'm curious if you have any other advice for navigating dietary changes as a family, especially when the shifting needs of the household members becomes a source of tension. Do you have some tips for how the household's primary cook can figure out how to work within new boundaries? So this is such a major question. Um, I really appreciate those kind words. And the backstory to this is in my first cookbook, Small Victories, I did a recipe for what I called Happy Wife, Happy Life Cake, which was a cake you love, Grace. It's a really easy chocolate cake that has raspberry jam in the middle, sour cream, and chocolate frosting. And then in my more recent book, Now and Again, that came out after you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and I made a more type 1 friendly version of the cake. So that's kind of the backstory, and I'm so glad that we're sitting here together. I thought we could kind of answer this together. Um, My first thing that I'll just say is that when you were diagnosed, and I can only speak for myself and our experience, but I was so glad that... I love cooking. It felt like I could do something helpful in a time that felt really uncertain and kind of scary. So I would say I really dove in. I know that might not be the case for every spouse or person, um, but for me, it was a source of great relief that there was something I could do when I felt like there was not much I could do. So my thought is just to think you're in it together. And just logistically, something we did at the time that I think was very helpful was we got rid of all the stuff that wasn't really on your list of things that you were eating right when you were diagnosed. We donated some stuff, we gave some stuff away. And then after that, I would say we kind of talked about things that you really loved. And I would suggest doing that. Make a list of family favorites and start from there. Figure out if you have to adapt them, ways to do that. There's tons of great cookbooks that address these kinds of things. You know, I think starting with the stuff that you love rather than convincing yourself you love something you don't already love, that's a really great place to start. Start from that point and then expand. Grace, what other thoughts come to your mind when we talk about this stuff? I mean, the first thing that came to mind was also that I think it took me probably a solid year to get comfortable in a kind of new way of eating. And I don't think I was appropriately appreciative of how much work you put into completely changing the way that we eat and how we stock our house. And so for the primary cook, which I'm guessing is Kelly who wrote the email, I would say if you have it, a little bit of patience goes a long way. And then when that person comes around to realize how much work you're doing, I think that appreciation and some of that tension that might be there might dial back a little bit because no matter what sort of change has inspired this dietary shift, those things can be really scary and can take a really long time 
to adjust to. So as a person who's been the reason for dietary changes, I would say if you are a fellow person who needs to make a dietary change, please thank the person who's doing all the work for you because it really, it's a, it's a big thing. And I've heard from so many people who don't have that type of support at home. And it makes a really big difference in living with any sort of illness or chronic condition that requires a dietary change. Practically, I would say Facebook groups are probably the most powerful tool that I've found outside of being married to somebody who knows a lot about food and knows how to cook it very well. Just belonging to different groups, especially private groups, because people have more frank conversations there um, related to whatever the particular issue you're dealing with is. Like for me, it's diabetes. There are people who have like thyroid conditions that have groups, people who are just trying to live low carb or whatever situation it is. Join a group that you feel comfortable in and just start paying attention to what they're cooking. I have found so many interesting hacks and just different ways to approach not just grocery shopping, Shopping, but things that I eat commonly as snacks or that we keep stocked around the house. So I think Facebook groups are a really practical way to kind of maybe keep your recipe repertoire updated or just with new ideas or to ask simple questions like, I'm making this for my kids who can't eat this now and they hate everything. What do I do? There's usually some really awesome parents on there with ideas for things like that too. Yeah, I think plugging into a community that's already been living with whatever your situation is, is like not something that can be underestimated how powerful that is. Just when everything feels kind of new and daunting, when these big shifts occur, whether it's for health or other reasons, you know, it kind of feels like, has this ever happened to anyone else? And then realizing like so many people have been through this and are willing to share. That's been very empowering. I've watched it be empowering for you. It's been empowering for me as your spouse. One other thought I had just in the sort of practical advice category, it's not something we've done, um, you and I, Grace, but I thought a really fun idea for, you know, whether it's this family or another, is to take a cooking class together, you know, that might address these needs specifically or is kind of related. And I think that just might be really useful because you have someone else telling you what to do, and that can be helpful when you're turning to each other and maybe neither of you know exactly what to do. To have a third party there could be really great. So that was just a thought. I would say when you first said, Julian, we started, that to remember that you're in it together. I would say as the person cooking, don't forget to communicate that if you're feeling frustrated and not appreciated, it's okay to say, hey, I'm scared too. We're all worried about this or frustrated. We're in this together. Don't take this out on me. You're totally in your right to, you know, be appreciated for all of the hard work you're doing. And on that note, as the person who in our house is, I would say, the, I guess, the primary cook. You cook a lot, Grace. Yeah, you're looking at me like, duh. <laughs> um, but I would say also just to add to that, of course, like you're in it together, but also you don't have to be a hero and you're a human being in this. And, you know, Grace, when you were first diagnosed with type 1, we both kind of like really severely kind of cut out carbs and sugar and stuff. And it just made things a lot easier, I think, for you. You know, I felt healthier and all that. But at a certain point, like I wanted spaghetti with my meatballs. So sometimes I would just cook a little portion just for myself and that kind of thing of like putting on your own kind of mask before you put on someone else's make sure you're taking care of yourself too because you don't want to feel any feelings of like resentment or anything like that and there's ways to kind of make things work and it can take a little bit more time and thought but to me that's time and thought very well spent so those are all the questions for today grace thanks for chiming in on that last one and as always being the voice of the listeners happy to help So this is the part where I usually shout out an organization for you to put on your radar. But today, I'm just going to remind you that Oko Farms, Yemi's Farm, is fundraising for their expansion and could really use our support. 
All the links are in the show notes, or you can just go to okofarms.com. That's O-K-O farms.com. And join me in showing Yemi some love. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Keep Calm and Cook On. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you have a few extra seconds, please rate and review the show. It really makes a difference to help others find it. And let someone know about it. Post about it on social media, text a friend about the show, email your family. It all adds up. Keep Calm and Cook On is produced and hosted by me, Julia Tertian, and engineered by David Tatashore. For more about David, head over to DaveTAT.com. And for more about me and my work and my cookbooks, head over to JuliaTertian.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Tertian. Thanks again for listening. This episode of Keep Calm and Cook On is presented by Great Jones. Great Jones is a line of beautiful, last-you-a-lifetime cookware that's priced well and comes in great finishes and colors. To find out more about Great Jones, head over to greatjones.com. And for 15% off of any purchase on greatjones.com, use the code CALM. That's C-A-L-M. 